We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 4 today. Um, if you would like, you can turn to it. Otherwise, it will be on the screen. How many of you watch ice skating, phys- figure skating, very often? Figure skating is a strange sport. If you notice, people skating backwards on thin strips of metal on their shoes and jumping around and doing spins, uh, people with their legs over their heads going in, in circles. I don't know how they don't get dizzy. You know, guys throwing girls halfway across the, across the stadium and, and holding them with one hand. It's, it's a strange sport. But I think the strangest thing is the commentary on the sport. Do you ever actually listen to the people commentating? I can't see what they see at all when they're, when they're talking about the people. I see a 10-year-old girl jump 10 feet in the air and spin around five times and land on the ice more gracefully than I can walk on dry ground. And they say, oh, she could have done much better there. I don't get it. You know, or, or she does something the same way that every other skater has ever done it, and, and they say, oh, I've never seen a performance like this before. It's amazing. Yeah, I can't see what they see at all. And then the judges, too. The judges, the skaters go into the booth, you know, and, and they sit there and they get their scores, and it's something like 6.84. Well, is, is that good or is that bad? I don't know. I have no idea. Um, I, I can only tell by the reaction on their faces. As someone who knows nothing about ice skating, I have no criteria with which to judge an ice skater. I can't judge them by the right standards. Okay? Now imagine that from my living room couch as I'm watching the TV, I come up with my own standards and criteria for judging the ice skaters. Perhaps I judge them by the color of their hair, or I choose to judge them by their age, or by the genre of the song that they're choosing to skate to. I think one fun way to judge them would be by the silliness of their Eastern European names. You know, uh, Would my judgment on the, have any effect on the skaters, on the audience, on the real judges? No. Should I expect my judgment to determine the outcome of the competition? No. My criteria and standards are useless for understanding what is really going on in the sport. And so my judgment is useless also. Here's my point. Something similar, very similar, was going on in Corinth when Paul was writing to the church there. There was a big problem that people were judging him and judging Apollos, another preacher that was there, and they were judging him based on their own criteria of what they thought a leader and a speaker should be. And for some people, as you know, Paul was not making the cut at all. And he wasn't as impressive as some of the other leaders and speakers. And by their standards for leaders, you know, their standards for leaders were set by the world's standards for what a speaker or a leader should be. And they didn't reflect God's standards for judgment at all. And Paul reminded them, he's reminded them over and over again in this letter, that I have not come to Corinth to make a name for myself. I have not come to Corinth to impress you. I have come as a humble messenger to share a gospel, good news about a crucified Messiah. You should care about the message, not about the messenger. You should care about the content of the message, Jesus, not about the person who's preaching about Jesus. Now, look at verse 1 and 2. Chapter 4, this is what Paul says. So then, men ought to regard us 
as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. Paul is making two points here that really cut to the heart of what's going on in Corinth with the division in the church over the leaders and all of that. And I think they really speak to how our church and how the other churches around us should function too. First, the apostles in the first century and any pastor or leader in a church today, their job is not to gain followers. They don't operate on their own. Their job is not to gain followers for themselves or to secure a good reputation with their church, but to be faithful to the task that their master has given them and to follow his orders, to meet his standards. Just think how different most American churches and most American pastors would be if this were their goal. The Corinthians, though, they were not expecting Paul to be a humble messenger and a servant of Christ. They were expecting him to be a star that performed. No wonder he wasn't living up to their expectations, right? The second point that Paul makes here is, Paul was, he was a mere servant of Christ, but on the other hand, he was entrusted. That is, he was put in charge of preaching the secrets of God. The word entrusted is oikonomos. And oikonomos was a slave that was in charge of his master's entire household, kind of like Joseph was for Potiphar, you know. Um, Now, who does the manager of somebody else's household try to impress? The owner of the house, whom he's held accountable to, or the other slaves in the house? His obligation is to the master of the house. Paul's responsibility, he's telling them, was not to live up to the standards of the Corinthians, but to be faithful to the trust that was given him. That is, to live up to God's expectations of him. Now here's what I want you to get out of this. First, whether or not you are a leader in the church, you are a servant of Christ. You do not operate on your own. Your job in this life is not to gain followers for yourself or to secure a good reputation with those around you, but to be faithful to your master and to follow his orders, to meet his standards. God does not expect you to be a star that performs, but to be his trustworthy servant. Just think about how different your life could be if this were always your goal. Second, Your purpose should be to please God with your life, not men. I think oftentimes, and I know this is true for myself, we're tempted to try to please everyone and anyone. And as you know, that is just simply not possible. You are not responsible for, nor will you be held accountable to, other people's judgment of you. And even the standards you have set for yourself. So why do we continue to try to live up to them? Too often, we judge other people and we judge ourselves by the wrong criteria and by the wrong standards. But your job is only to live to the criteria and standards that God has set for you. That is your responsibility. Your your only duty is to be faithful to the task that God has appointed you, whatever that might be in your life. 
for his sake. You stand or fall by his judgment and no one else's. Now look at verse 3. Look at what Paul has to say in verse 3. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. Oh, to be free of the fear of other people's judgment. You know, to be delivered from this greed for other people's approval. You know, to have liberty of even refusing to pass judgment on yourself. To know that God's assessment of us is all that matters. Do you know what happens to us? We start judging ourselves based on the, the criteria of the people around us, and we can never live up to it. Think if Paul had done that. He would have been caught in the rat race of all the world's greatest teachers, and he, he would have reduced the message of the gospel to a mere philosophy. His effectiveness for the sake of the kingdom would have only extended to the limits of his own selfish ambition. But as Paul himself said to the Galatians, he said, Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or God? The actual word he uses there is, Am I, am I now trying to persuade human beings or God? Or if I, am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Think if Jesus had spent his life trying to live up to the expectations of all the people around him rather than his Father in heaven. The Pharisees, as you know, they judged him by their own criteria of what a good Jew should be. And Jesus didn't meet their purity standards, or at least he didn't make his disciples meet them. The teachers of the law and the scribes, they judged him on whether or not he held their correct interpretations of the law. And so he didn't receive their approval either. Even his own disciples, did you real, have you realized this? He, he didn't even live up to the, the judgment and standards of his own disciples of what a Messiah should be. He didn't live up to their criteria. Even his own brothers in John chapter 7 judged him and mocked him. If Jesus had tried to please everyone and live up to their standards and their judgments, he would not have been Jesus. But he didn't. He played to an audience of one. He knew God's standards and he lived to please God, not men. The word judge in verse 3 means something like to examine closely with a critical eye. An eye that's looking to find fault, basically, is the idea. But Paul regarded the judgment of the Corinthians of him as something of very little importance. Sort of like a horse regards a fly that's buzzing around his leg. Doesn't even bother him. Doesn't even bear on his mind. How was he able to let go of the fear of other people's judgment? How was he able to let go? Because he knew that it's only God's judgment that holds any weight. On the last day, even his assessment of himself will be disregarded. God alone knows how to judge a person, and only God's judgment really matters. So, Paul can let go of every other judgment in this present time, because he knows that God is the only judge that matters. And we can let go as well. We can let go as well and live free of any other burden 
other than to please God with our lives. Now, I don't want to cause confusion here. I don't think Paul is exactly saying that we shouldn't care what other people think of, of us. See, occasionally it's, it's very appropriate to consider the impression that you're leaving on other people. I knew some people from my college days that certainly didn't care what other people thought of them. Otherwise, they probably would have showered more often. But there, there's a difference between caring about what other people think about you and letting the Lord be your only judge. There's a difference. And I don't think that Paul was saying that he wouldn't let anybody else confront him or correct him when he was wrong. That's because confronting and correcting someone when it's done rightly does not involve judgment. Confronting and correcting is about a person's actions, but judging, on the other hand, makes decisions about a person's true self about their heart, about their soul, about their worth. It is not our place to cast judgment on others or even our right to cast judgment on ourselves. That place belongs to God alone because we cannot see anything but the outward appearance. Look at verse 4. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing. Another way to say that would be, stop judging. Judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. Why does only God's judgment matter? Because only God knows a person's heart, the person as they really are. This is 1 Samuel 16. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And this is, this is what Jeremiah has to say. The heart is deceitful above all else, all things, and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. It is God's judgment that determines the standing of a person. And the praise that comes from him is the only praise that matters. This kind of reminds me of Daniel. um, Daniel from the book of Daniel in the Bible. Actually, did you know that the name Daniel means God is my judge? And over and over again in the book, this comes out as true. You remember in the beginning of the book of Daniel, the kings and the officials tried to change his name to Belteshazzar, and they changed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's names too. Those guys' names stuck, but Daniel's didn't stick. Throughout the whole book, they call him Daniel, and I think the reason for that is that he, for sure, had God as his only judge. He had an excellent spirit about him. The Bible says. He, he, he rose to prominence in Babylonian government. He, he impressed the kings and the officials over and over again. But there is no mistaking who Daniel was living to please, right? God was his judge, and when God's standards came in conflict with human standards, Daniel always lived to please God. You remember this? When, 
when he would only eat the vegetables because he didn't want to displease God, when he would pray even when they they had an order not to pray. He always lived to please God and meet his standards. And so Daniel was always going in and out of favor with other men, in and out. But in God's eyes, he was always a success because he lived to please God and God alone. God was his only judge. Now, I think it's necessary to ask ourselves, which judge are we getting ready to stand before? Which deposition are we preparing our case for? I think this is a hard question to answer, hard to realize who we are living to be judged by, but I think everybody is. Here's some questions that might help you. Think about it. Why do you work the way you do at your job? Why do you speak the way you do? Why do you use the words that you do? Who do you dress to impress? If you're a teenager, why do you work so hard to get the grades that you do in school? Why do you drive the car that you drive? Why do you live in the house that you live in? Why do you spend the money, your money the way that you do? Why do you treat your family the way that you do? Why do you go to church on Sundays? The answer to all of these questions can be, and they should be, to please the God that I love. Now look at verse 6 and 7. Now, brothers, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not take pride in one man over against another. For what makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? I think this is the heart of the issue. For the whole first four chapters of the book of Corinthians. This is is basically what Paul is trying to say to them. Look, the real issue is not that you're comparing leaders and taking sides and having divisions in your church, even though that's definitely an issue. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. I'm simply using this thing with Apollos and I as an example. The root of the issue is that you are puffed up and prideful. The phrase that he puts in there, do not go beyond what is written, I think that refers to the Old Testament, specifically all the Old Testament verses that he's quoted so far in this book, which, if you've noticed, all have to do with either being prideful or being wise in your own eyes. Paul is just incredibly exasperated at the Corinthians at this point in the letter. I can kind of picture him in my mind as he's dictating um, this letter to a scribe, just huffing and puffing. You know, what, what gives them the right to judge, me or anybody else, with such a critical eye and be so puffed up in their own self-righteousness when everything that they're proud, prideful about was given to them as a gift and not earned? I mean, this is, this is what he says in chapter 1. Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. In other words, you were nobodies when God called you. You were nobodies. You'll remember from last week when my dad was talking about 1 Corinthians 3, he pointed out that 
the Christians in Corinth and elsewhere were an evolved species. That is, they were a new kind of human. And they became new when they received the Holy Spirit. But even though they had the Spirit, they were still acting and they were still speaking like men. Like men who did not have the Spirit. Now here's Paul's point in chapter 4. Is that even though they have the Spirit, they are still judging like men who do not have the Spirit. They're still judging according to worldly standards. And now that they've learned a few things about the mysteries of God, and now that they have a few abilities, like speaking in tongues and prophesying, I guess they've reckoned that now they're, they're really somebody's after all in the eyes of the world. See, as you know, the world bases its judgment on a lot of things, none of which... God bases his judgment of people on. The world judges people on status, on title, on importance, on influencing other people, on appearance, on image, on wealth and possessions, reputation, on fame, and all of this is done with comparison to others. All of it. But in the next section of chapter 4, Paul makes it very clear that they they are judging him and they're judging themselves based on the standards of the world, not on God's standards. I think these next few verses might be some of the best writing in the New Testament. I mean, it's it's very ironic. Look at at verse 8 here. Already, already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. You've become kings, and that without us. How I wish that you really had become kings so that we might be kings with you. Paul's being ironic, of course. Um, They're not really rich, at least not most of them. And they certainly weren't kings. But he's using irony here to make a point that this is how the Corinthians see themselves. This is how the Corinthians see themselves. These are the standards that they're trying to live up to. These are the goals that they have for their life. The things they cared about. Status, importance, image, wealth, possessions. They considered themselves wise, strong, honorable, according to the standards of the world. That's verse 10. But brilliantly, I think, Paul counteracts their foolishness by telling telling them how he is viewed in the standards of the world, how he's judged and assessed in a worldly light. This is what he says in verse 9. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of a procession, like men condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. You know, in Roman times, uh, when a conqueror or a victor had, had defeated an army, he would take a prisoner of war and he would take them to Rome and he would cart them around in a parade and they'd be at the very end of the procession just so that people could mock them and humiliate them one last time before they were taken to the arena and beheaded or eaten by animals, right? And this is what, this is what Paul is saying he feels like. He doesn't feel like a victor in the eyes of the world. He feels like a victim. When he says... We have been made a spectacle. That word spectacle is theatron, from which we get our word theater. And basically what he's saying here is, 
by becoming an apostle of Christ, he feels that he's received nothing but derision and humiliation in the eyes of the entire world. He feels like he's standing on a spotlit stage just so that everybody can laugh at him and throw rotten tomatoes at him. That's what he feels like by the world's standards. That's how people judge him, by being an apostle of Christ. He goes on. He says, this is verse 10. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, and we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work with our own hands. By the way, Greeks, all Greeks despised manual labor. They thought it was fit only for slaves. And yet Paul's saying, we work with our own hands. We are cursed. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this very moment, he means even as he's dictating this sentence, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. The idea behind scum there, the word scum, is the dirt that's left over after you clean something. It's the, it's the unwanted, the unusable, the unwelcome waste that you can do nothing with but get rid of. And the other word there that's translated refuse, that was often used of people that were used in human sacrifices. Um, these, the people that were usually chosen for sac- to be sacrificed were those that could be most easily spared. They were the ones that were the most useless in the, in the community. And so Paul's point is then that the apostles were regarded by human standards as being the most worthless of men, as being the world's trash. Can you imagine calling yourself the world's trash? These men who had lived their entire lives in the service of Christ, they didn't play according to the, the rules of the world. They didn't meet the world's judgment And so as far as the world was concerned, they were fit only to be discarded. And for Paul, what that meant was persecution and slander and martyrdom. And interestingly enough, he goes on a couple verses later to say, um, after sharing how despised he is in the eyes of the world, he says to the Corinthians, imitate me like a child imitates your father, which one can only assume means imitate me in being the world's trash and being the scum of the earth. So let's apply this. Let's apply this passage. Paul had given up. He had had stopped trying to live by the world's standards and to, to stand before human judgment. He considered the things that the world values and the standards that it judges by to be garbage. Remember Philippians 3? To be rubbish just as much as the world considered him to be garbage. We need to imitate Paul just as the Corinthians did. The approval of men is worthless, and their judgment is meaningless. It's like my favorite line and my favorite hymn, Be Thou My Vision. Uh, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise, thou mine inheritance now and always. So let's stop judging others. Let's stop judging ourselves according to the standards of the world. Let's live like Daniel and Paul and Jesus, most of all, with God as our only judge. And what that actually will entail in your life, I don't know. 
Maybe it won't so much as change our actions as it will our reason for doing the things that we do. One thing I know, though, is that our pride, that pride won't haunt us anymore if we're living only to God's standards. But I can share with you, and we'll end with this, what God expects of us. What are God's standards? What does it mean to live up to his judgment? This is Deuteronomy Chapter 10, verse 12. What does the Lord your God require of you? He requires only, only that you fear the Lord your God and live in a way that pleases him. And love him and serve him with all your heart and your soul. So, Let's do all things, whether work or live or love, in order to please the one with the only judgment that matters. Then we can stand before the throne on the last day and we can hear those words that we all long to hear. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would use the truth in those verses in a powerful way in our lives. Would you help us to give up trying to live to anyone's standards but yours? Amen. We're going to stand together, repeat the hymn that the ladies sang. We're singing just the first and last verses. It is well with my soul. <laughs>